Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting recent work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. So today, uh, our guest is Gabor Malish uh, from the DeepMind office in London. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, his paper on the uh, titled On the State of the Art Evaluation in Neural Language Models. It's uh, co-authored by uh, Chris Dyer and Phil Blansom. Um, so the paper is trying to give us a more uh, a more clear picture of what the state of the art is in the in this important problem of, of uh, language modeling, and uh, we wanted to know what's the motivation for uh, this for this paper. Well, you you can tell probably by the choice of topic here that uh, we we were burned a couple of times by uh, trying to reproduce results from uh, various papers and trying to build on uh, uh, their findings and and use them as baselines for uh, further research. And it's very frustrating when, when one does that, finds a really cool model and has the greatest idea in the world to uh, how to turn that uh, into something even better and more buzzword compliant as well, such as uh, you take the deterministic model and you, you you make it variational and suddenly uh, you, th you think it's going to change the world, but it doesn't because uh, the baseline model doesn't do what's uh, written on the tin. And I think this is not a unique experience. Every researcher in the field or in other fields uh, will face this issue. Uh, so I thought, uh, okay, uh, let's take a step back and use all that uh, uh, experience in a positive way to actually say something about what's wrong and how possibly how we could uh, improve uh, how we go about research. Makes sense. So what models did you decide to compare? Um, so we decided to compare uh, LSTMs because they are the workhorse of uh, NLP. Uh, I guess that's for a reason in hindsight. And uh, we also chose uh, recurrent high highway networks to compare with because it has extremely good results uh, on uh, on some tasks. And we are concentrating on uh, language modeling here uh, because that's the basically the smallest non-trivial building block that all neural ap approaches basically boil down to. Uh, even machine translation is conditional language modeling on the decoder side plus attention but let's not let's disregard that for a minute so we we included uh, recurrent highway networks and um, in the latest version of the paper also this uh, uh, NAS cells the neural architecture search uh, cells from from brain because it's uh, it's designed that cell is designed by uh, an algorithm reinforcement learning uh, running in uh, model space, which, which should make it pretty different from hand-designed uh, source. Could you just give us like a, a very brief uh, like introduction about uh, like um, the uh, recurrent highway networks and, the, uh, and, the, and the, the third model so that the audience can follow uh, what are the main differences between the three models you're comparing? Right, so LSTMs were it are, are are the most uh, well known of the, of the lot. 
And uh, LSTMs basically can be interpreted in, in, in various ways. Even, even at iClear, I think there is now a paper that tries to cast them in a, in a different light. So I'm not going to go out on a limb and say something interesting about them. And I will just assume that everybody knows them. And uh, recurrent highway networks seem to be very different uh, as they were presented in the original uh, publication from LSTMs because uh, they do multiple processing steps for each uh, input. On the other hand, if you if you take a, a slightly different approach as uh, to drawing them, you can you can draw all those processing steps vertically. And when it it all boils down to not having a recurrent state between uh, at the same layer in your uh, multi-layered recurrent highway networks only from the top layer at the previous time step to the lowest layer at the next time step. It's pretty hard to follow this when uh, described in uh, speech, but it's it's uh, quite kind of trivial on, on the diagram. So viewing our RHNs uh, in this slide makes it uh, a bit harder to see why they would be so much better than LSTMs because all, the, all they have is uh, a different kind of bias possibly due to the different connection, connectivity structure in, in the model. And um, that was also one of the things that uh, made me uh, interested in recurrent highway networks. Maybe we have just found the right kind of bias there, right? And um, so we, we spent quite a, quite some time trying to reproduce the results, and we could, and that that was good. Uh, by by some tuning, we could actually improve on their on their results. But we also wanted to get, give a fair, fair chance to the baseline, which is sadly uh, lacking in in most works. And we wanted to see how LSTMs would uh, would do if we took regularization and. Uh, architectural decisions uh, seriously. For example, uh, recurrent highway network, there was a, this beautiful uh, figure in, in the paper. As you increase uh, the number of time steps, which is basically the number of layers, uh, it gets uh, better and better. But uh, upon the 10th reading of the paper, I, I kind of thought, OK, uh, Wait a minute. It's, it's it has the same number of parameters no matter how many processing steps it it does, but the total number of the parameters is the same. But the number of parameters in the recurrent cell increases as the processing steps gets uh, higher, be because it gets uh, narrower, and uh, there is going to be fewer parameters in the embedding matrices. So to compare apples to oranges, is, uh, it's great if you, if you compare models uh, with different numbers of parameters in the embeddings and the recurrent cells, but this is a trade-off that uh, you can possibly tune. So this was one of the, one of the insights as to what kind of uh, architectures uh, Hyperparameters we want to choose and tune. 
and we looked for uh, other uh, hyperparameters and uh, regularization choices that we were unsure about. And variational dropout is pre pretty popular these days. There is also the slightly less well-known uh, recurrent dropout, and I'm using the original uh, terminology from the respective papers. The re recurrent dropout is basically uh, taking a, if it's applied to an LSTM as originally done, what you do is you take the update uh, vector, I think that's the, that's the U in the original formulation, before the gating and you apply dropout uh, to that vector. And it's uh, it seems to be performing pretty much the same as variational dropout. Sometimes one is better than the other, sometimes the other. Uh, it's, it's the other way around. So to cut uh, to the chase, it, we found that uh, LSTMs are extremely good uh, across a number of uh, language modeling data sets. And uh, even, even to a point of beating uh, RHNs, uh, when you actually take the time to tune those nasty regularization par parameters and the, the trade-off between recurrent cell size and embedding size. So, in a sense, we could verify some of the claims in the literature when it comes to regularization, and especially the papers about sharing um, input and output, output embeddings that you covered uh, in a previous uh, episode. Uh, but the relative merits of RHNs and LSTMs um, I think those were uh, those came out uh, in reverse in in our experience. Similarly, when we added, sorry, <clears throat> I was going to say, um, I guess you've given us the the highlight, the end result of your experiments. Do you want to um, tell us a little more detail about what exactly you did? So you had this fancy hyperparameter tuning setup. Oh yeah, um, so the. So we, we used Google Vizier, which is uh, sim similar to Spearmint and all the other black box hyperparameter tuners out there. And we b defined as many hyperparameters as that tuner is confident with, right? These tuners tend to break down if they have more than a dozen. And uh, even we had something like nine hyperparameters to tune and we, uh, try to narrow the tuning ranges as much as we could without uh, handicapping the model. And these parameters were like embedding size and depth of the network, or was that was depth fixed? Depth, uh, we ran separate tuning uh, runs uh, for uh, different uh, depths. All right, but you, but you have a projection down from it, like the hidden, hidden size of the LSTM down yeah. to like a final uh, embedding size again. So like these the, these parameters are the things that were tuned by the hyperparameter optimization. Yeah. So the the embedding size, uh, the propor the ratio of the embedding size and the hidden size was one was one tunable, and uh, for each tuning run, which involved one to two thousand model evaluations each, 
we had a parameter budget such as 10 million weights or 24 million weights, a, a model type such as LSTM or RHN or this uh, uh, neural architecture search cell that was added in a, in a later version of the paper. So you can see how the how these numbers will multiply. You take four, three depths, one, two, or four number uh, layers, three architectures. That's a multiplier of twelve already. And there are a couple of different flags you can you can choose, and these are only the things that that you want to compare on equal equal grounds, and then you let for each of those experiments in this matrix, you add the tuner, tune the, uh, the parameters that are less interesting to, for, uh, for comparison, such as the learning rate, the dropout uh, rates, weight decay, embedding ratio. So in, in total, how many different uh, hyperparameter sets did you, did, you, did you experiment with in the, in the results? So what, one one and a half thousand per each experiment, and there were, I don't know, maybe thirty experiments. Wow. So look, looking at the your results, you report previous results with LSTMs on language modeling. They get perplexities. I guess the the best previous LSTM was around seventy perplexity, depending on the number of parameters, and mm -hmm. you report perplexities around sixty. So that's like a yep. 10 to 14 point improvement. Is that all due just to this hyperparameter optimization? Like why, why do you think previous LSTM results, like what's the, what's the explanation for this gap? Uh, well, it, practical tips, has, I think if you, have a, if you have too few parameters, then the, then the trade-off between the cell size and the embedding size is very important. The, Tuning, not tuning uh, dropout rates and regularization parameters, learning rate is also responsible for a couple of perplexities at least. Uh, doing grid search over your hyperparameter space is going to lose uh, two, three, four perplexity points as well, according to uh, some non-scientific uh, experience and more more like guess guesswork that, that I did looking at the sensitivity of the of the hyperparameter space so all these add up and if you if you miss any of those and probably there are more that I missed in all honesty it, it's very hard to to claim that improving a model by one and a half perplexity points is is suddenly better in, in some sense, interesting, and that's that's the that's the crux of the problem here. What we want is better models at the end of the day. So uh, I I, th I also think it's really interesting that the recurrent highway network previous published result was sixty five test perplexity, and your the comparable number for your experiments was sixty two. So you only got a three. Yeah. There was only a three-point gap there. Why is that gap smaller than the gap for the LSTMs? Any intuition on that? Sure. Uh, well, I think it's it's inevitable, really, that uh, you give more love to to your own brainchild, right? And uh, you better tune it. I might have tuned LSTMs uh, better myself, 
right? Because after a while, I, I thought, okay, there is a story here, and I want the story to stand out. I tried to avoid the, that as much as I could, but I probably still did it. And I think, yeah, every paper uh, does that, especially the the model in innovation one innovation papers. In the previous version of this paper, there was a model in innovation in there. That, but it, it there were two problems with it. That uh, when we did the baseline uh, evaluation too well, the the gap suddenly went away, and all we were left with was uh, was a bit faster training, which was not a great story to tell. Uh, yeah, but if we if we didn't spend all this time on uh, getting the baselines uh, up to speed, we we could have told we could have told a nice story about uh, how advanced gating uh, improves uh, LSTMs. So another uh, possible hypothesis for the difference between these two gaps, that the gap for the RHN is a lot smaller than the gap for the LSTM, is that the RHN is less sensitive to hyperparameters. Like you, you could imagine looking yeah. at, at curves of your hyperparameter optimization algorithm that over time the RHN gets gets faster to some uh, asymptotic result, but it, but it, it's as, it asymptotes lower, right? Does this make sense? And yeah. do, do you have any, like, is this true? I imagine you, you've tested this hypothesis, so I didn't see any results yeah. in the paper on it. No, no, I, I think someone else asked this uh, before, and I checked the sensitivity there, and uh, it was actually the other way around. If anything, uh, RHNs were a bit more sensitive to the choice of uh, hyperparameters. Interesting. So I, I think of uh, you at Google have a, a really large com computation budget. And I feel for the people in academia that don't have such large computation budgets. And so I, I wonder, like, it, is that, it, are we just doomed to have this 10-point gap in performance if we don't have access to thousands of GPU hours of compute to do this hyperparameter optimization? Uh, that's clearly not, not true, no. Uh, there were a number of uh, papers uh, coming out recently one of them, I think, parallel to the uh, work to this paper that had basically the same uh, result with pure LSTMs without uh, memory, additional memory or uh, dynamic evaluation. And they could they could get uh, really good uh, results with uh, with uh, way less tuning. So I guess it's not the question of whether you can get really good results. It's about the confidence you have in your final numbers. And yeah, I, I would really like to cut down on the variance of the results so that it's it becomes less of a fashion industry and more of a science. I, I totally agree. In fact, our, like two episodes ago, we, we had a bit of a rant about this exact point. So yes, I totally agree with you. I, I like this paper a lot. So speaking of the training uh, time, the long training time, I'm curious to know, uh, <clears throat> If, if it's really like uh, practical to uh, to apply a similar approach to larger uh, data sets, like the one billion word corpus uh, often used for language model, evaluating language models. Um, so uh, what what can we do in, in these cases where it's really hard to do 1.5 thousand experiments for every setup? Uh, yeah, that's, that's 
that's a problem even um, even with this this amount of uh, resources uh, larger data sets took way too long but fortunately you need way less uh, regularization uh, there so the the next data set that I think is a sweet spot for uh, language modeling is the Wiktext 103 data set, which is considerably larger than PTB and Wiktext 2, and but probably still feasible to cover the hyperparameter space uh, a bit better. Uh, on the other hand, the billion word data set might be uh, both a bit too large and a bit broken, I'm told. So the, the way the data set was constructed is is uh, well, that, that probably warrants another episode, but uh, suffice it to say that uh, it's, it has problems with the training test uh, split. So I, I would much rather trust, trust the uh, Wikitext uh, data sets and try to make a, a compromise between the variance of the results and the, and the toyness of the data set. So we don't want to exclude uh, uh, people with uh, non uh, enterprise level uh, resources. So I think investing time in, in doing a much more efficient hyperparameter uh, searches, reducing the number of hyperparameters uh, is, is a very worthwhile uh, thing to do. I would, I would personally not go there myself, but I think it's a very important uh, uh, topic for all fields. It's a cross-cutting thing. So I'm curious if you, uh, how much would we lose if we tune our hyperparameters on one in a smaller data set, but then apply it on a bigger data set, or to like uh, something that you maybe you may be able to answer is, what happens if you tune uh, like you had, I think three data sets that you you used. Uh, what happens if you use the smaller one to tune your hyperparameters and then use uh, apply it on the bigger one? How much do you lose? I don't know. I uh, I thought about this how how to make the tuning more efficient by tuning on small uh, data sets. But in the end, I didn't want to uh, uh, make this this compromise as as much as I can avoid it, because it inevitably brings some uncertainty. I guess you do have some results where you tuned on the Penn Tree Bank and evaluated on Wikitext too. Right, and there we yeah. see a, a drop of at least ten points perplexity. Right, and so yeah, it looks like these matter quite a bit, and are are even data set specific. I was wondering, like, if if uh, if I'm using an LSTM as part of like some question answering model, if I could just use the hyperparameter values that you found that work in these LSTMs, and that that result seems to say no, I definitely can't that I need to do tuning, like it's not even data, you can't even transfer these hyperparameters across data sets. There's no reason to think you should be able to, to transfer them across tasks, which is a much larger gap, right? Yeah, and also across implementation, like implementations, I guess, uh, slight differences can, can add up. Uh, on the, but this brings me to the point, to one of my pet peeves, basically. So when, whenever we 
we we say that uh, we test the model. We often have a training test split, and we we also care about transfer learning. And this PTB train on PTB and apply to Wikitext two setup was kind of transfer, but it's it's not a binary not a binary thing. You can you can take PTB and uh, make sure that those test uh, sentences are very different, more different, less overlapping with, with the training set as you normally have. And how much effort, how much uh, you put there or how, how different you make the test set is, is a continuum. continuum. Uh, at one extreme, you train on one data set, you, you get another. But uh, the way we measure generalization with training and test set splits is often makes us forget that uh, there are very uh, important implicit uh, assumptions and uh, factors in how we split those uh, sets. And this is especially important for domains that are highly structured, such as all the linguistic uh, data sets. So sometimes I'm, I'm really not sure how relevant some of some of the work uh, we do in NLP is in, in an applied uh, applied setting because of this, which is uh, it's hard, hard to do something about. I guess all the data set uh, people who, who actually go about constructing data sets give, give way more so to, uh, to this. But let's keep in, keep it in mind that all these data sets are toy. PTB is the toyest of all, right? You you can interpret these our results as uh, saying that let's not use PTB anymore. Let's use data sets for which regularization is not an issue anymore. But then you have the other. Uh, other problem because training now takes uh, ages. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I'm sure no, you don't mean to undermine the effort that went into constructing the PTB corpus. It, it did drive a lot of research, but uh, in context of language modeling, it does, uh, it does, uh, it is, it has very serious limitations. Yeah, it, I think it, it survived uh, a bit too too long, and it's very convenient because everyone has. PTB setups, <laughs> but uh, it, we should probably move to uh, more interesting uh, data sets. So I have one last question. Uh, what do you think is uh, the right way to evaluate language models? Uh, there, like some people think uh, perplexity is a great way to do that. Uh, other people think uh, doing extrinsic evaluations, machine translation or other tasks would be the right way to do it. Uh, but of course it's more complex. Uh, so I, I guess one question, I ha one concrete question for you is, uh, how much of a difference have you seen um, if you try different, uh, like different variations of the model, which have very different perplexities on a downstream task? Okay, so we we haven't really done uh, downstream task at all in this uh, in this setup, but yeah, so. The ability of your uh, language model will matter a lot in uh, so for semantic parsing or anything that basically employs the same building block, uh, often at least if you do uh, neural models. 
the right way to evaluate these things, we all know that perplexity is a, is a proxy and it's, it's a nice proxy that correlates uh, with, with lots of things, but it's still a proxy and we are, we have a nice number to tune for and that makes us forget that it's not what we, are, what we actually care about. Machine translation is nicer in that regard because uh, you can make the argument that blue is closer to what we care about, <laughs> or uh, but that that only lasts as as long as you don't try to optimize directly for it. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> because it, because if you if you start, you might see that uh, you can improve the blue, but not the not humans' perception of. Uh, of uh, goodness, so all these all these metrics are are wrong. Some are more wrong than the other, but the but the perplexity seems to be pretty safe. Uh, it correlates with with lots of things. So I think that's that. It's a very important thing to to figure out what to actually optimize for, how to come up with uh, losses, maybe learn them. But we, we, I think we, we don't have data sets or, uh, shall I say, uh, dynamic environments in which uh, language uh, plays a role in which you could actually deduce losses from environmental uh, factors. That would be nice, but we don't have that. All right, thank you very much for the discussion. Um, uh, I hope more people will be uh, as careful uh, as you did in this paper, evaluating the different variations uh, of their models. Thank you. I wish them all as much gray hair as I got. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks. Thank you very much.